Matthew 26, verse 47. We're going to be there to verse 56. John, where's John? John Keller was here. There you are over there. John, you're going to love more Bible study, less sermon today. Yeah, that's for you. Um, and this is a really amazing text, and I got overwhelmed with so much, so uh, hopefully we'll, we'll still be able to, to get through it together. Um, so let me set the table a little bit. So I, I think I've alluded to this experience before in this room, but it, it bears repeating because of its connection to what's going on in the rest of Matthew's gospel that we have together. So several years ago, um, my dad used to have two season tickets to the New Orleans Saints game back when, when they were good and uh, when Drew Brees brought hope to, and light to the world. So um, one year he, he couldn't go to the, the game, and, they were, and so John O and I drove Jonathan down as a surprise for uh, the, a game where the Saints were playing the Redskins, who are still terrible, praise be. And um, so, sorry, Gillette's. Um, that's all right. You should. That's all right. There's hope for you yet, brother. You know, this is this is this is a Jesus room, not a football team room. It's okay. Um, but in that particular moment, there's really no like concern about who would win that game. Um, but what what everybody was hyped up about in that for that moment. And if you've never been to a New Orleans Saints football game, it's as close as you can get to a cult. Just want to say that I, I say that as a fan. But it's pretty intense. Um, but what was exciting about that game was the fact that Drew Brees was likely going to break the all-time NFL passing yards record. Um, and I think Brady's gone on since past that. But at the moment, it was really big deal, really, really big deal. And so we're sitting in, in season ticket seats, you know, maybe Jonathan's first Saints game. And um, there was a point in the game where Brees passed the yards, passed the record. And they stopped the game. There was this 10, 15-minute celebration, um, and all around us in our, in our seats, you know, were grown men and women in their 60s crying like babies. Hugs. Um, I mean, it was truly one of the most emotionally charged environments I've ever been in in my life. And Jonathan and I are just, at least, I don't know, Jonathan, I won't speak for you. This is what I was doing. What in the world is this going on? Like, I'm a Saints fan. I've been like, but this is a lot of emotion tied to the, uh, you know, a whole lot of football being thrown around, right? Like, I, I'm just a little bit dis, disconnected. So, I mean, tears, hugs, all the things. I understood what was happening, but I didn't understand the meaning of what was happening. I was talking to my friend Richard about this, who grew up participating in, in following the Saints, and he was at home in Memphis watching the game with his wife, and he and Tiffany were crying at home over this game. And he was trying to explain to me that when you've watched your team be terrible for 30, 40 years, you're going all the way up to Bum Phillips in the 70s, like, you're to have this moment where you've already you've won a Super Bowl and you've got the best quarterback, like, it, they understood the meaning of the moment, right? They, I knew what was happening and was, you know, happy for everybody, but they understood the meaning and they were drawn into it in a very, very deep way, okay? So as we push into the rest of Matthew um, that ultimately leads to Jesus' crucifixion in the next two or three weeks and then, of course, his resurrection and the Great Commission, it's interesting as you read through this, what, one of the things, the thing I want you to see, one of the things that I want you to see is that there's not, in really any gospel account, 
there's no description of the facts. It's, it, there's no, um, and it, there's no, now when Jesus went to be crucified, let me, let me explain to you what that looks like. There, there, that just doesn't happen. That's not the gospel writer's interest. They're not worried, they're not trying to communicate to you that it happened. They're trying to communicate to you why it happened. Okay? They're going after the meaning. They're not going after the history. The history is there, and there's meaning in the history, but what the emphasis is in the writer is in its meaning, what Jesus was actually accomplishing in the cross, and why this is getting ready to happen. Okay? In fact, I'll push it even a little bit further. It's almost like the gospel writers, when they were, when they were uh, putting together their, their, their tome here, is, is that um, the crucifixion and resurrection are almost approached differently. You know that people die. So they don't have to go into the facts about that. What really matters is why he died. You don't know that people get resurrected. And there's, in the resurrection accounts, there's facts, historical details about the resurrection. It's really, I think it's really cool. So I want, I want you to keep that in mind as we, as we go. And today we're going to focus on the meaning. We're going to focus on the meaning. Um, we're going to focus on verses 47 to 56 today. I'd hope to get from, from 57 to, to 75. But there's so much um, going gospel going on that um, I got overwhelmed, and, and this is not the kind of church where I should you know, be here for an hour and a half at the pulpit, so, nor am I the kind of preacher, honestly. So, um, but I do want to focus on, on the meaning of God. So we're going to look at three conversations. Judas and Jesus, Peter and Jesus, and then the crowds and Jesus. And each one of these interactions what you're going to see is that Jesus is trying to get to the cross and, and everybody else is trying to get to something else. Human beings from different, for, go, are trying to go in a different place than the cross. Jesus is always trying to get to the cross. And the implication of this is, is that it brings to bear what it looks like to live a cross-centered life. So um, you've ever watched like the cooking shows, Food Network, um, they'll, they'll sometimes give you, you know, like, uh, what's the one? Chopped. You know, they give you, like, magic ingredient. Not magic. They're not magic. <laughs> Secret ingredient. You open it up, you're like, oh, I've got to make, you know, a chocolate part, chocolate something made out of, you know, beans. Okay. So that, right? And sometimes they'll, they'll take that central ingredient and they'll present it in, like, in three different ways on the plate. Like, the main, they'll, it'll be the main ingredient, and then there'll be a little bit in the second and third, and a little bit in the third. And they say, I'm, I've served up to you, you know, tuna three ways or something like that. That's what Jesus is, that's what Matthew's doing in his gospel right now. He's giving you the gospel three different ways. So it's the same message, just in three different presentations and experiences. And all of them speak to us about how to live a, a cross-centered life. So look at verse 47 through 50. Let's look at Judas and Jesus. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi! And he kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked, 
Why have you come? And then they came up and they took hold of Jesus and they arrested him. Okay, so let's talk about Judas just a little bit. Um, there's not a lot of, there's no shortage, I should say, of curiosity about Judas. Um, to say nothing of the theological implications of his, uh, his doing this. Was this something he could, could have not done? Like, well, how does the sovereignty of God and the volition of man, the will of man, how does it work, all that? Like, I, I get it. There's a lot of scholarly stuff, and we can't tackle all of that, but it's, it is there. Some people read Judas like he's the villain, right? If John Ralphio from Parks and Recreation were here, he would read the story of Judas and go, he's the worst, like he was, and y'all are not Parks and Rec people, that's okay, it's really funny, all right, um, so some, like you think, I cannot believe that guy, I just can't believe that guy, how evil he was, okay. but you might read Judas and think, man, he's sympathetic, like you, you might, you might, like, you might, like I get it, I get, I get where he's coming from, I mean, maybe he was possessed by a demon, maybe he was tormented by something, maybe um, uh, I, I can understand why he would feel the way that he felt. I, I get that too. But what about the kiss? Right? What about the, the kiss? That, there's something about that. If you'll, if you'll note in the text, it was actually not in this one, there in the other ones, you'll know it's dark when this happens, right? And so when this mob, when Judas and this mob come up to Jesus, they've got oil lamps or a torch or something with them, it's really hard to see. So one of the theories that's out there about Judas is that the reason he said, I'm going to kiss him so you'll know who it is, is because it's dark. And look, when I take my glasses off, y'all are a blur. If you add darkness to that equation, I can't tell you from my wife. Um, and there, are, there were no opportunities to correct your vision. <laughs> somewhat, somewhat blind. Uh, oh, much better. Um, so, so one of the theories is that like, the reason J Judas went up to kiss Jesus is so that they would actually recognize him as, as the Jesus that some of them had seen in, in all of his teaching. Whatnot, because in the darkness, they couldn't figure out who that was unless he physically marked him with some, with, by doing something. Okay. So in that regard, if that's the case, Judas doesn't have any ill will behind greeting Jesus and putting a kiss on, the, on his cheek in a, in a traditional way. He's just trying to mark him in the sense that, okay, guys, I've sold him out to you. Here's the guy that it is. There's another way to look at the kiss. The, 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 if a, um, some scholars say that if a uh, follower, to go back to our Sunday school lesson this morning, if you were following someone, being discipled by someone, in Jesus' day, you would never greet your rabbi first when you saw him. To greet him first would have been, uh, late, would have been like a, a sign of, I'm equal to you, I'm better than you. D done so publicly would have been to his shame. So the theory here is that Judas is, this, is the worst villain ever in this move. Not only has he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which we'll come to in just a little bit. But he is now publicly shaming Jesus by greeting him first with a mob behind him. Okay. He's, he's, he is the worst. Okay, And what is it that 30 pieces of silver gets Judas that Jesus doesn't give him? Right? It's an exchange of resources. I have a relationship under discipleship with Jesus, or I have 30 pieces of silver. What is it 
that that gives him that Jesus has not. We just satisfy us with your love. That wasn't happening for Judas. Satis 30 pieces of silver. That's what I need. That's going to give it to me. So I think it's sufficient to say that Judas wasn't tormented. I think he was all in. And that said, let's don't be too quick to judge. Right? Because Lord knows everybody in this room has substituted or sold out Jesus in exchange for something else that they think will satisfy us more. Right? We're Judas in this story. Now, if, when you do that and you repent, then you're walking in the way. So, like, if you temporarily exchange God's satisfaction and his love for something else that you think will satisfy you, but then you go, well, that was dumb. Really regret that decision. I'm coming back to you, Lord, Psalm 90. That's walking in the way. But Judas is not walking in the way. He's made a permanent decision. This Jesus is not for me. And he, but 30 pieces of silver will do it for him. I want you to see how Jesus responds. Judas is on one path, and Jesus is trying to get to the cross. Look how Jesus responds. Friend, verse 50, why have you come? Now, when I first read this, what I thought Jesus was doing was being gentle and lowly Jesus. Okay, to go back to our sermon series a couple of years ago. I assumed that Jesus was responding to, to Judas with this unbelievable amount of grace and irony. <laughs> right? Irony because he knew Jesus, Jesus, that Judas was in no way being Jesus' friend. But grace in that he addressed him kindly, you know, like in a form of a question, like he didn't make any assumptions. But that is not the way we are. I've since read smarter people than me. And I've, I've learned that's not what Jesus was doing. If you go back to the, to the Gospels, what you'll see is that whenever the, the word friend is used as an address, it's done as a warning. Um, so if you go like, for example, if you go to um, the parable of the wedding banquet that we looked at a few weeks ago, um, there's a, one of the guys makes it into the wedding party and he's not dressed appropriately. And do you remember it, somebody comes up to him and they say, Friend, <laughs> you're not wearing the right clothes. And they cast him out, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's addressing Judas with, um, with compassion, because, and there's nothing that... Uh, warnings, are, warnings are acts of compassion, right? When you, when you look your kids in the eye and you say, Look, friend, <laughs> you keep going down this road... And this is what you're going to get. Not that I've ever said that to any of my children. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. Friend, why have you come? I want to warn you, Judas. Why have you come? Analyze, think, process. So Jesus is being compassionate. He is being gracious, but he's doing so as a prophet. He's issuing a warning to Judas. And that's a question that we all face time and time again. How, um, how tempted are we to believe that happiness and contentment and satisfaction are always right around the turn? You know, like, I see it. 
And if you succumb to that idea, then what happens is you'll use everybody in your path as a means to get around the bend, to get to that thing that you've determined is your happiness, right? That's what Judas was doing with Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, whatever that was or could lead to, we don't, we don't know why that was the number that arranged in his heart for it to work out, we don't know. But what we do know is Jesus was now a means to that. He was dissatisfied with who Jesus was, and he was a, he was a means to that, that other end. And if we read this account and judge Judas, then we're the closest people in the room to becoming Judas. Because the fact of the matter, that's us. That's us. We're rescued from that by the gospel. Okay. But we, we need to hear Jesus' warning from time to time, especially on this side of the cross when we know what took place there, right? Jesus, all along in Judas' life, had demonstrated his unconditional love for, for Judas. And now having finished the work of the cross, having resurrected from the grave, having ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has now fully historically demonstrated his unconditional love and service to us. There is nothing that's going to satisfy more than him. Nothing. The unlimited demand of the gospel, the unlimited grace of the gospel has unlimited demand in our lives. And when we give ourselves to it, that's ultimate satisfaction in him. Okay. So Judas is going one way and Jesus brings the cross to bear. I'm going to the cross. I've demonstrated my unconditional love for you. I'm coming. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. But Judas gives him up because there was some other greater good. So Peter steps in. Ah, Peter. Look at verse 50 through 54. At that moment, one of those with Jesus, one of those. By the way, John throws Peter under the bus. <laughs> That's how we know it's Peter. Matthew is a little more. I just can't help but think there's some literary banter between those two guys. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew a sword, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Austin, that's the intern, in case you're wondering. Okay, cut his ear off. Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father, and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Not the way Jesus described that it could happen. But how could this way be fulfilled if, all those, if you got your way, Peter? Which you hear what Jesus is saying. The cross is the way, not the sword. Right? Peter sees Jesus going to the cross and doesn't want anybody to go to a cross. He wants to win with violence. Okay? And he just acts. He's just impulsive. He's just impetuous. He, just, he doesn't stop to think. He's like, I got this. Take somebody. Peter's actions are a guide for us to, to when we are thinking wrongheadedly about things and we just act, right? Because what Peter is believing in this moment is not cross-centered thinking. Peter draws a sword, tells you everything that he's thinking. He's thinking that it's his responsibility to bring the kingdom of God by force. He thinks that 
he has to sacrifice himself for the cause in order to earn and be in God's kingdom. Okay? That's very traditional of this world thinking, but Jesus' gospel thinking is the exact opposite of this. The good news of Jesus is not that we should sacrifice ourselves to earn his righteousness by works, but that Jesus has sacrificed himself for us and given us his righteousness by faith. That's good news. When Peter draws and swings his sword, he says, I got you, Jesus. And when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, he says, I got you, Peter. The gospel does not come by bearing a sword, but by Jesus receiving a sword. The gospel does not come by Jesus bringing judgment, but by Jesus coming and receiving judgment. So the way we change this world, Peter, Rob, Blackman, is not through power, but through service. That's the way we change the world. It's not through a court. It's not through an office. It's through gospel service. That's the way we change this world. We don't need an insurrection because we have a resurrection and a crucifixion before that. Okay? So the fact that Peter draws a sword also tells us that he thinks he's one of the good guys who's got to beat up the bad guys. If you have felt this way about the faith, you are Peter thinking, not Jesus thinking. If you think the Christians are the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys, and you've got to beat the bad guys because you're the good guys, you're thinking like Peter, you're not thinking like Jesus. Peter feels superior to Judas and those coming to apprehend Jesus, so he tries to destroy them. But if you understand the gospel, going all the way back to the Beatitudes, you recognize that you're not superior to anybody. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm in need of rescue. I'm not the solution with a sword. I'm a part of the problem. And if we've seen with Jesus dealing with both the Pharisees, who are the conservatives, and the Sadducees, who are the liberals, conservative and liberal people all have this problem, and the gospel transforms both perspectives. Both perspectives. Talked a little bit about this when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let me just refresh because it comes to bear right, right here. A conservative person says... <clears throat> you know what we need, Rob? We need more people like me who are virtuous and traditional and upstanding citizens. Okay? That's a person who says, I've arrived in my virtue and tradition, and if you're not like me, then you are condemned. That's a conservative, moralistic stance. Okay? And then you, you go down to the other side of town, where the liberals live, and you say, you know what you, you'll hear? This is what you hear them say. You can just actually, you know, you can, you can if you are really bored, you can watch the, um, the, the Republican National Convention, and then you can watch the Democratic National Convention, and they will, this is exactly what's going on. And Jesus just blows it all up, both sides. Okay, That's a metaphor, not a call to arms. Okay. <laughs> That's what, that's, what, that's what happened over if Mike Pence's thing over here, okay? And then if you go over here to Biden's thing, he would, they say, you know what we need? We need more people like me who aren't narrow-minded and bigoted. 
literally is what they would say. Right? And that's because they think that they've arrived in their progressivism, so they condemn people who aren't like them. Both sides condemning each other left and right. Okay? Both groups have swords in their hands. <laughs> okay? Which is why politics is never going to bring about what only the cross can. Only the cross can do this, okay? What we must all say is that we are all what is wrong and we need a rescuer, okay? Which is why the church cannot officially align itself with any political organization because political organizations aren't submitted to Jesus. I'm the problem, my heart, not someone else's, and I'm saved because of the grace of God, which means that I never go out looking at other people and pull a sword on them, okay, to fix them. I want to tell them about the rescuer who rescued me. Well, that's a very different conversation. Okay. So that's, that's what we get from Peter. And then lastly, there's the crowd. Thank you for your patience. Look at the crowd, 55 and 56. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Peter was not the only one who thought that a weapon might be a good idea which gives you some indication just to how tense the situation was, right? But isn't it interesting that the one soon to be arrested, the one who was going to be tried, kind of, the one who was going to be beaten, the one who was going to be crucified, is the one who is like, chill? He's chill. He's, like, he's, giving, he's dropping truth bombs. He's totally chill, right? And the ones who are going to be responsible for all of this are completely worked up into a frenzy and have brought guns, so to speak. Right? Look what Jesus says in verse 56. All this, what we've just read, all this has happened, past tense, so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. This is the way. Jesus is saying. He's chill. So if the crowds, and, and like I've said, you, we are Judas, we are Peter, we are the crowds. So what I really mean is us. Okay, If we really understand what God is getting ready to do in the cross, if we understand its meaning, Judas is looking at the facts, Peter is looking at the facts, but Jesus is looking at the meaning and if we understand its meaning, then there's no reason to freak out about anything in this world. This is why Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How, what is the peace of God? It is the peace of God that's been made for you, but between you and God by the work of Jesus on the cross. If you understand the crucifixion, 
the sovereignty and the providence and the goodness of God to send his son to die on the cross for your sin, to give you his righteousness when you could never, ever, ever, ever earn it yourself. If you understand that God has been working to this end through all of history to this moment, then no other circumstance in your life can ruin you. If God has solved your sin problem, then he can solve your fill-in-the-blank problem. Got it? So the moment when everything looked out of control because there's a mob and there's fire and there's weapons and this was actually the opposite. It was God orchestrating the, the most incredible act of love this world, universe, will ever see. So if that's true, my afternoon's going to be just fine. Thank you very much. Okay? But did you notice what the disciples did? They deserted him and they ran away. They are no different than the crowds at the moment when it comes to not understanding how the cross is getting ready to apply to their chaos. At the very moment when everyone else saw a disaster and ran, Jesus stayed and he was working all things for the good. Jesus stays in our chaos. He gives us that peace in our chaos, right? And that's, folks, trusting in the work of Jesus in the cross, that brings a calm, that brings us a peace. No matter what you're facing, God is still there. That's what this story illustrates. They're all facing chaos and they see it and Jesus just sees purpose. He sees calling, he sees prophecy, he sees fulfillment, he sees God working and so he stays and does the work of God on our behalf. So what that means is when you see chaos, and you say it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. Not your plan. Not my plan. Probably. My plan's usually, it's usually Holly's plans is what we do in our, in our life, right? The Holy Spirit. But we, sorry, theological jokes. Yay, all right. At the moment, at the moment when there's a, you got to tell yourself, whoa, 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 whoa. My sin has been fixed. And the story is, it shows me the meaning of what life is. universe's problem. You can solve my universe's problem. My little tiny Psalm 90 universe. I trust you with it. I trust you with it. That will completely keep you from getting bent out of shape when things don't go your way. This is the cross-centered life. It's the gospel three ways. It is Jesus showing us in real time, in narrative form, in story form, how the cross applies in contrast with our alternatives. Let's believe the cross. So I want to invite you into a cross-centered way of life, a life that claims the truth of the gospel and brings it to bear on your mind and on your heart and on your circumstances and on your relationships and see the transformation that comes when you do it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this really beautiful word, picture, and story, a narrative that lays out for us, not just historically, you know, what, what happened. This stuff happened. I mean, it's, it's, it's a narrative. It's a, we get it. But it's meaning. What does it mean? It means that the cross redefines 
everything in this world, in this universe. It's the center of the universe. And it has, therefore, unrelenting, unrelenting implications for how we're to live our life. So would you make us sensitive and aware of our proneness to wander from the centrality of the cross and keep it forefront so that we can live by it? For some, that may be the first time. Today, they're deciding today who Jesus is and what he has done. That is real, that is right, and I want to follow him right now. If that's the case, Lord, do your work by the Spirit right now. And yet again, we come in repentance and say, we have sought other forms of satisfaction. We have sought other forms of, of a glory. We've tried to be God instead of follow God. And we've run that course and we see how awful the implications are and the, and the applications are. And so we come back to you and say, forgive us for not seeking the center of the cross in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name.